Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Quartz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. Well, I want you to uh, join me this morning in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be looking together at Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. We're coming to uh, look this morning at a parable, a parable of Jesus, uh, a parable that follows a series of parables, actually, in chapter 15. In chapter 15, Jesus is speaking directly to and about the religious people of his day, namely the Pharisees, who are always, always looking down on and avoiding public sinners, people whose sin is incredibly obvious to everyone. And Jesus is rebuking them with these parables and their treatment of uh, flagrant sinners and uh, broken people. But in chapter 16, his parable shifts its focus. And rather than speaking to and engaging the religious Pharisees, he begins to speak directly to his own disciples. And what he does in this parable is to speak to his disciples specifically about how they should see and how they should handle wealth for the sake of broken people. So with our Bibles open or our smartphones on, let's look together at Luke chapter 16 or you'll see it overhead as well. Jesus said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and he said to him, what is this I hear about you that you are wasting my possessions? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. In other words, you're fired, you're fired. The manager said to himself, verse three, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and and I'm ashamed to beg. Oh, I, I know what to do, verse four. I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. And then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. And the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world, Jesus says, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Let's pray together. Father, now, as we're gathered around your word, here is my my simple prayer, is that as we deal with a subject that is sensitive and tender, a subject uh, that uh, we're all interested in, but we find uh, 
challenging to hear about. As we talk about wealth today, Lord God, I pray that you would grant to us open hearts and open minds, that your word would find its resting place in the hearts and minds of your people, that you will give to both preacher and congregation uh, clarity of understanding and communication, that we would both have the help of your Holy Spirit as we seek to understand what your word has to say, what your son has to say to us today about wealth. May, Lord, we be found faithful both in our preaching and in our hearing. For Jesus' sake, amen, amen. Now, in our series on stewardship in a strange new world, we've, we've already looked at a couple of topics. We've looked together at stewarding the truth in an age of lies, and we've also looked at stewarding our relationships, particularly in when it comes to our children. But today, we're going to look at another topic. We're going to look at the topic of wealth. And uh, I want to begin by asking you some personal questions, questions that if I asked them to you one-on-one -on -one in the lobby, you would be really offended. But I can get away with it in this setting because I'm behind a pulpit and on a platform and there's lots of other people around, so somehow it makes it easier. Here they go. Are you ready? All right. One of us is, and that's enough for me. Number one, how much are you worth? If you take all of your debt and everything that you own and you subtract what you owe from what you have, how much are you worth? Secondly, how much do you make a year? What is your income? And thirdly, are you rich? Are you rich. Now, I can tell you that if, uh, if you were, just for an example, if you were to say to me that I have a, an annual income of $58,000 a year, then I would be able to say to you, you have hit exactly the median income in the United States of America. That is to say 50% of Americans would make more than you do. 50% of Americans would make less than you do. You are dead in the middle at 58,000. So I don't know how you would feel about that. I don't know if you would say you were rich or not, but here's what I do know that if you were to say to uh, uh, the uh, global community, I make $58,000 a year, it would sound a lot different to many, many of the people who would hear your announcement because the median income in our world is $2,600 a year. That is to say, 50% of the people on the planet make less than $2,600 a year. 50% on the planet make more than $2,600 a year. And I would say to you, if you make $58,000 a year in the United States, those people, most of those people, the vast majority of those people would say that you are insanely rich. No matter what you think, they would say, you are insanely rich. They would say the McDonald's and Dario's and Mi Pueblo are high dollar, expensive restaurants, even though they don't have a chef. 
I'm pretty sure they don't have a chef. Rich, to be rich, of course, is relative to time and place and condition. I know all that. The meaning of rich ultimately depends on your perspective. One financial planner reports uh, that she knows people who make from 250 to 500,000 a year and feel poor. She knows others who make 70,000 a year and feel rich. It's all a matter of perspective. While you and I tend to, to use terms like rich or wealthy to refer to anyone who has lots of extra money to spend, uh, what we want to accomplish today is we want to explore what Jesus understands to be true riches and uh, how he says they're actually obtained with stewardship. Even in our strange new world, a world that is undergoing rapid change, hostile to faith, and seems to be falling apart. In our culture, we tend to organize our, our lives around wealth. We tend to organize our lives around getting wealth, protecting wealth, spending or using wealth, and or displaying wealth. And the core idea that seems to kind of pulsate through our culture is that by gaining and using money and possessions, to satisfy our needs and desires, it is then that we will find and know life. Our, our culture very quickly, very easily identifies money and possessions with life. That money and possessions, because they meet needs, because money and possessions um, uh, help us to acquire what we desire, we tend to associate those things and ultimately to confuse those things with life so that if we have money and we have possessions, we often will say, I have life. Money and possessions buy us comfort. They buy us well-being. They, they buy us pleasure. And most of us in America measure life by comfort, well-being, and pleasure. Am I comfortable? Am I healthy? Am I happy? If I have those things, I'm alive. If I don't, then my life isn't worth living. We aim for those things. And here's the problem. Many, many believers in the United States share that same perspective. We may not articulate it that way, but the reality is we tend to look at money and possessions, to look at wealth in the same way that our world does. We tend to look at life in the same way that our world does. If I'm comfortable, if I'm well, and if I have some level of pleasure, then I am truly living. If not, I am not. Hence the need to organize our lives around wealth. Jesus takes a very, very different view. And we see it expressed in our parable for today. Jesus uses this parable to challenge a wrong view and a wrong use of money and possessions. And he uses it to offer his disciples a healthier, better view of wealth and a plan for how to use it. Now, here's something I want you to see. The problem that Jesus is addressing in this parable was a problem with his first disciples. It has been a problem for every generation of disciples up until the very present. Why? Because the world, not just our culture, but the world as a whole 
tends to define life in terms of money and possessions and in terms of that wellness and, and in terms of that pleasure and those things, the uh, comfort that we all seem to seek and tend to identify, misidentify as life. So Jesus wants to give us a healthier, better view. He wants to give us a plan. And I think what he's doing, quite frankly, in this parable is he's testing us for the view of wealth that we're living by. He's actually, with this parable, forcing us to kind of look at ourselves and to kind of look at our checkbooks and to kind of look at our wallets and our bank accounts and and our homes and our cars and all the things that we have. He's kind of forcing us to look at those things and to ask the question, what does this mean to me? What does this mean to me, really? What does this mean? He wants to help us answer the question, what's the right way to understand my wealth? What's the right way for me to understand, regardless of what it is, regardless of what kind it is or how much it is, what's the right way for me to understand it? So I want us to look this morning at at the parable Jesus tells. Then I want us to look together at the point that he makes uh, as a result of it. And then the practical spiritual application he makes of that point of the parable to life. All right. So let's, with our Bibles open, let's look at the story together. Let's break the the story apart. You'll notice with me in verses one to seven, there's the parable, there's the story. And in verse one, we have the parable setting given to us. There's a rich man. He has an estate manager who's empowered to make legal transactions for him, to negotiate contracts, uh, all to increase his personal holdings, all to increase his his personal wealth, the, the rich man's personal wealth. So theirs is a relationship of incredible trust. The manager lives on the master's property. The manager uh, manages the the master's wealth and possessions for his master's benefit. He's charged with keeping careful records along the way, just like you would expect just like you would require uh, if that were your situation. He, He requires good records to be kept and taken. Of course, the great temptation in this situation is to, to, over time, begin to confuse what is the master's and what is mine. Because I have control over it, because I have access to it, because I make serious decisions about it, I can, over time, begin to confuse. Now, it's, you, know, you know, yeah, that's his, but we can begin to see, he can begin to see, any manager can begin to see the owner's property as our own and, and, and begin to use them for our own uh, enjoyment, our own benefit. And that is exactly what seems to have happened right here. Charges are brought, we're told in verse one, to the rich man against this manager. He's accused of squandering his master's pros- property, of wasting it or losing some of the master's wealth by mismanagement or its extravagant self-indulgence. Probably both were involved. Probably both were happening. So in verse two, the manager is fired. He's called to account, told to wrap things up, told to turn in your accounting or to turn in the books or the financial statements of all that he was responsible for. You're done, he's told. And what this means for him is a couple of things. It means dishonor. It means sudden insecurity. He has no income. He has nowhere to live suddenly. He's now going to have a bad name. No one else is going to want to hire him to do for, uh, for them what he had been doing for this rich man. So he's out on the street with nowhere to go, nowhere to live. 
unable to get another job like the one he had. He's in trouble. We see his response in verses three to seven. First in verse three, he reflects and he asks himself, what should I do? He knows he has two immediate options and he doesn't like either one of them. He can dig dishes, which is the, the, the work that was available to anybody who wanted work who couldn't do anything else. It was low paying, it was menial work, it was hard work, and only the poorest of the poor did it, but he could do that. Or he says, I've got another option. I don't like that option, I'm not strong enough, or I can beg, but I'm too ashamed to beg. So he says, I'm in a quandary. I've messed up, I'm going to have a terrible reputation. I'll never get another job like I had. I, I, I could dig ditches, I don't wanna do that. I could beg, I don't wanna do that. I need a third option. But what I want you to see is that this man, as he's dealing with this dilemma he's put himself in, is, is thinking long-term. He's not asking himself, all right, I got fired on Monday. What am I gonna eat on Tuesday? He's saying to himself, I've gotten fired on Monday. What am I gonna do the rest of my life? What am I gonna do not just tomorrow or next week or even next year, but what am I gonna do for all the years ahead? What am I gonna do? He's thinking strategically. He needs a solution now for, for tomorrow that is long-term and better than the pain that he sees coming. If I don't do something, I'm either going to be digging ditches or I'm gonna be begging. I don't wanna do either one. So he focuses all of his attention, and this is important, on safeguarding his future without a job and ensuring that he survives, that he makes the most of whatever he has right here at the moment. And he quickly hits on a plan and makes a decision. We see it in verse four. Basically here he says, I've got it. While I still have the books, and this is important, the master said, I want you to get your books together, turn them in, you're done. While I've still got the books, while I'm putting everything together for the owner, I have a plan. Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna use those books to make sure I've got a way forward before the word gets out about my job and what I've done. And with a brief time that he has, the ex-manager comes up with a plan to, to ingratiate his master's debtors to himself and perhaps out of that, get a place and a new position out of it. And he's gonna do this by wrapping up the books and discounting the debt his master's debtors owe at the same time. It's brilliant. I'm gonna do exactly what you said. I'm gonna get my books together. And while I'm getting my books together, I'm gonna have discount time. I'm gonna put all the debt on sale and I'm gonna make myself some friends. Brilliant, brilliant. Now we don't know exactly how he's discounting. Is he giving up his commission? We don't know. Is he reducing it just enough so that he can't quite get caught? for what he's doing, because the master wouldn't know what each individual person owed. We got two examples here, there were lots of them. He was going through a long list. We don't know, but what we do know is that the debts that were there before he got fired were greatly reduced after he was fired. So you look at the size of these debts recorded in verses five to seven. One of the things that we know is that these debtors are themselves pretty wealthy individuals. They're renting large portions of land and they're raising large harvests. They're making their own share of a good portion of money. So what the man is doing is basically this. He's saying, I'm going to, I'm going to cut everybody's debt 
And I'm hoping that of all these people that I'm reducing their debt, one of them, at least one of them, will give me a place to live and maybe give me a job. So I'm going to take this awful situation I'm in and work it to my advantage. And so in verses five to seven, we see him operating his discount program one by one. He's implementing it. He calls their debtors in, trims their debts, and then sets himself up for the future. This is later called by the master himself in verse eight, shrewdness. It's the ability to assess situations or people and use them to your own benefit or advantage. So Jesus reports how the master reacts to the manager's exit in verse eight, and and he does something unexpected. Though he's been cheated, he commends the manager at his departure. He doesn't commend him for being dishonest. He fires the manager for that, but he commends him for his shrewdness, for his ability to find a way to turn the mess he had made into an advantage he could use in the future. And in verse 8b, Jesus begins to use this parable to show his disciples how to view the, the material things he gives them, the money and possessions, and then how they should use them. So notice with me first in in verse 8b, Jesus' explanation for the parable and its point. He talks about the problem his disciples have, the children of light, the problem they have, seeing and using wealth rightly. And then he gives a specific command to his disciples regarding how wealth is to be used in verse 9. Look with me first at the problem in verse 8b. Jesus explains why he's using this parable. The sons of light, he says, hmm. They're less shrewd than the sons of the world when it comes to dealing with the people and the situations in their lives. While the sons in the world of the world are skilled in assessing how to take and make the most of today for the tomorrow they see, the sons of light, Jesus' followers, they're not as good at that. The, the sons of the world have more foresight, more thought, put more thought into their futures and their dealings and their treatment of other people than God's people do. And the truth is, Jesus says, my people should be more like the world, not in their dishonesty, but in their shrewdness, in their intentionality about looking at what they have in the present and and using it to make the most of what they see coming in the future. Now, Now, here's a critical, critical difference. This manager who represents people of the world is doing what the really, really sharp people of the world have always done and will always do. He looks at what he's got, yeah, the mess that he's in, but he still has the books. He makes the most of what he has. He looks into his future and says, I've got to do something in order to secure my future, to make sure my future is everything I need for it to be. So here are the steps I'm gonna take. He's very intentional, he's action-oriented, he's going after it. He says, I got it, this is what I'm gonna do. Discounts, like crazy. I get them all through here, close the books up, give them to the, give them to the master, and then I'm gonna start visiting the people. It's interesting if you look at verses five to seven, how he says to every person, now, what exactly do you owe? I love this. He's being so smart. Well, I owe 100, 100 bushels, 100, 100 cores of oil. You know what he's doing, don't you? He knows what they owe. He knows they know what they owe, but he wants them to say it. He wants them to say it so he can then go and say, well, just take your bill here, mark it down to 80. Because from that point forward, they're gonna be going, that's the guy gave me 80 when I had 100. I like that guy. Yo, 100, you mark down 50. 
oh, I, I like that guy. Can you imagine you go in thinking you owe one thing, you go out owing less? Wow. Wow, pretty good deal, pretty good deal. Now, but here's what I want you to see. Jesus says, my people aren't so very good at this. And what does he mean by that? What is he getting at when he says that the sons of light are not good, about, uh, uh, not as shrewd? Well, here's the deal. A pagan, a person who, who isn't a follower of Jesus, looks at life and they go, all right, life has its beginning and life has an end. And between the beginning and the end, I need to make the most of it that I can. I need to take all the money I can get. I need to take all of the uh, possessions I can acquire. And I need to use them for my comfort, for my well-being and for my pleasure until finally my life is done. I need to make the most of it. And they're very intentional about that. How can I take and use this for my own benefit until suddenly... I am no more. It's very different though for followers of Jesus because we understand that life has a beginning. We also know that death is coming, but we don't see death like the pagans see death. For us, death is but a door into eternity. Death doesn't mean what it means to a pagan. Death means a brand new life in the presence of Jesus in a restored heaven and a restored earth. That, Jesus is saying here, should change the way my people see the wealth that I've put in their care. This should change the way they look at and use money and the way they look at and use their possessions. They should not live like the pagans do saying, how can I use this for my own benefit and my own good before I come here to the end? How can I make the most of this for me rather knowing where they're going and how how they're getting there by way of the grace of God shown in the gift of Christ Jesus. How can I make the most of where I, what I have knowing that I don't stop here, I'm heading for eternity. Jesus is saying it should radically transform the way we see wealth. But of course, here's the problem, here's the problem. Most sons and daughters of light use their wealth just like the pagans. As if life actually ends here. And so... God's children have a different future, a different destiny, a heavenly future. And all Jesus is really saying is, my people ought to be absolutely just as diligent in, excess, in assessing the long-term consequences of their use of wealth as those are who don't know God, don't have heaven ahead. They, must, they should be just as diligent in protecting and making the most of their wealth as the world is. They should even be more so when they stop to realize that everything they have, I gave them and actually it's mine. They should realize they're really just managers, 
pagans, they're owners. Believers, managers. That's a problem, Jesus says. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? You'll notice in verse nine, Jesus gets specific with his application of the parable for his disciples. He says solemnly, and I can't stress this enough. Look at verse nine. He says, and I tell you, and I tell you. This is, this is critical. Jesus is saying if, effectively, I'm not just saying this is a good idea. I'm not just making to you a suggestion. He's saying, I, your master, am saying directly to you, make, for your, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Jesus wants his people to be as shrewd in this life as the pagans by using the same strategy of the unjust manager that we see in verse four. For just like this manager, here's what Jesus is pressing us to to see and realize. Just like this manager, believers are in a critical place now. Just like for this manager, life is short. Just like for this manager, money runs out. Both life and wealth will always fail sooner or later. And like this manager, there is a different life coming. And like him, believers, Jesus is saying, need to have and to take bold steps to prepare to enter into that new life they now have with God in a new heaven and a new earth. They need to live, believers need to live now and invest now to enter that new life in the best possible condition. And here's something I want you to see. Don't miss this, don't miss this. Jesus and the New Testament teach us that everyone who trusts Christ enters heaven when they die or when Christ comes again. Every believer in this room knows that, understands that. And I would say, good, good, I'm glad you know it, I'm glad you understand it. Yes, in Christ, you have a place. In Christ, you have a way. He made the way, he gave you the place, it's yours. Nobody can take it from you. But here's something many, many of us don't understand. That the heaven we're heading for is not an equal place. It will not be an equal experience for everybody who, who by faith and trust in Christ actually gets there. Believers don't enter heaven and receive the same rewards. The rewards are not equal because their life's investments aren't the same. Every believer will be rewarded based upon what they have done. Not with new life, not with salvation. That's won, that's done. Christ gave it, the cross assures it, it's settled. I don't worry about that. What we're saying here, what Jesus teaches is that once you're saved, once once you're one, once that's done for you, then your life should change and how you use your life. Yes, we could talk about gifts. Yes, we could talk about time. Jesus right here is talking about wealth. Jesus here is talking about your money and your possessions, whatever they are, however much there is or isn't. Jesus is talking about that. There is coming one day a reward. In fact, there are rewards coming one day for how we use the master's stuff. How we use the master's wealth 
how we use the master's money and the master's possessions. There is coming, there are consequences for believers in terms of what they do or don't do with the money in our wallets and the things in our houses and our houses and our cars and all the other stuff that we have. Heaven is not going to be equal because everyone's investments are not the same. This is why, one of the reasons why Jesus is telling this parable. He's saying, I want you to be shrewd. Yeah, your life is short just like, your earthly life is short just like the pagans. The difference is you know more about the future than they ever could. You have more confidence about the future than they ever could. You should be living differently and shrewdly at the same time. We will be rewarded based on our generosity with the master's wealth toward others. Indeed, believers reap what they sow into the lives of others for the sake of Christ. Now, I'm going to say this, and I want you to hear me. How many of you live in the 2020s? I'm just wanting to check. How many of you actually live in the 2020s? I know some of you are trying to live in the 1970s. It's not going to work. You can't go back. It's just isn't going to happen. But I know you keep trying, but let's try one more time. How many of you live in the 2020s? I live in the 2020s. Okay, good. Good, because I need to tell you this. Your culture tells you to sow constantly into your own life. And there are churches and religious teachers that will tell you God wants to sow good seed into your life and he wants you to have, you know, the, you know my proverbial three-car garage, pool and a pony. God wants you to have all these things. God doesn't care. His ambition is not for you or me to be comfortable, have all the well-being we want, and, 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 and to have all the pleasure we think we need. No. That, that's not the deal. But here's what I want you to see. Your world tells you that that's what life is all about. That your money, your property is yours. You can do with it whatever you want and you should use it. I mean, give a little bit away to, to people who are poor, and need, but, but, but make your main focus yourself. Make sure you are comfortable, make sure you're well and make sure you have the pleasure, the experiences, whatever it is that you, you feel like you need so that you can really live. That's what the world tells us. And a lot of us have bought that. And we use heaven as an insurance policy to say, well, once I do die, I hate that I've got to die, but once I do die, at least I got that. Which is really a strange way to look at it. Jesus comes and he says, and Paul reinforces this in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, that what believers sow into the lives of others for the sake of Christ is what they actually are going to reap. That the most important reaping, watch this, the most important reaping from the sowing we do here is not here, 
The most important reaping from the sowing we do with our lives is not here before we die. The most important reaping comes after we die. That's the most important place. That's where the impact is had. That's where the impact is felt. So I want you to notice with me here what Jesus does. One of the ways to understand this sowing and this generous investing in others is, is in the parable's picture of making friends. I love this. Uh, notice how Jesus tells his disciples in quick succession in verse nine, this command. He tells them what they're to do. He tells them how they're to do it. And he tells them why. All when it comes to wealth. First, he tells them that, that they are to be shrewd by making friends for themselves. And a lot of us go, well, that sounds easy. Well, at least the extroverts do. The introverts are going, oh no, I gotta make friends. I've decided our church is full of introverts. We have very few extroverts. And I'm just praying that God will send us more because we're all so quiet. You extroverts going, making friends, not a big deal. Introverts are going, what's a friend? Even I gotta have friends too to be, be a follower of Jesus. Yeah, you can do it, Jesus will help. But he says, the first way, if you're really going to be shrewd with your life and all that God's put in your care is use it to make friends. Notice he tells his disciples how they are to be shrewd by making friends for themselves. He says, verse nine, by means of unrighteous wealth or by being generous with the money and possessions God has given them to manage for him. And then finally, Jesus says, he tells them why they are to be shrewd. He says, so that they may receive you into eternal dwellings. I love that. It's a powerful, powerful picture of what's coming. Now, critical to understanding this command of Jesus, and he is unambiguous. He said, listen to me. It's me talking to you. This is not an option. This is not a suggestion. It's not a great idea. I'm commanding it, okay? Critical to understanding this command is, is understanding just what Jesus means by unrighteous. He doesn't mean ill-gotten gain. Unrighteous wealth here is simply anything of value we have in this unrighteous or God-averse world. As Jesus uses the phrase, physical wealth is always spiritually dangerous and potentially evil because it so easily competes with God for our affection and our attention. J Jesus is constantly saying, be careful. Watch out. Be careful. Money's going to hurt you if you're not careful. Money's gonna ruin you if you're not careful. You're gonna to begin to love it if you're not careful. You're gonna to begin to pay too much attention to it if you're not careful. If you don't have enough of it, you'll love it and you'll pay too much attention to it. If you have too much of it, you'll love it and you'll pay too much attention to it. If you're right there in the middle, you'll love it and you'll pay too much attention to it. Be careful, you're gonna love it and pay too much attention to it if you're not careful. So what does Jesus say? Be careful. That's what he means by unrighteous wealth. The best way to use unrighteous wealth is whatever God intends for it. And what God intends for it has to do with his eternal lasting purposes. When God gives me wealth, when he gives me money and possessions, he intends for me to take it and use it thinking past 
my death into my eternity every single time. Why? Because God is always thinking past this little blip of time. We're but vapors. We're hardly here. We're hardly here for a moment. What matters is what happens in eternity. And so when God gives us wealth, when he gives us property, when he gives us money, he gives it to us temporarily. Because by the way, that money you have is either, Jesus is gonna tell us, it's either going to fail you or you're gonna fail your money. It's either gonna run out on you or you're gonna run out on your money. You do know this, right? Either you're gonna come up one day and not have it, or one day money's gonna show up and not have you because you've died. Right? So, so Jesus is saying, listen, whatever you have, some have more, some have less, does not matter. God is not going to hold you accountable for what you don't have. He's only going to hold you accountable for what you do have. So stop saying, I don't have much. Whatever you have, you have. God's given it to you. Be glad for that. And remember, the median income in this world of ours is $2,600. And I'll bet you have more than that. You're rich. You're going to McDonald's after this service. I know. Nah, I wouldn't either. You're right. She's going. <laughs> Dario's, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> God wants us to take this and think about that. Every thing we have, take it, think about that and ask, how do I use my money, my possessions, my house, my cars? Whatever I have, how do I use those shrewdly so that they make a difference for eternity? See, here's the way it's supposed to work. The friends that are to be made for a believer, according to the New Testament, are the lost and the poor. You find this constantly. You find this constantly. Believers should be thinking about the lost and the poor, the lost and the poor, the lost and the poor, the lost and the poor. Why the lost? Because without Christ, they're, they're facing a destiny in hell. Why the poor? Because nobody thinks about the poor. Almost nobody thinks about the poor. Almost everybody overlooks the poor as if they don't matter and they matter to God. The widow, the orphan, God cares. So, so here's what Jesus is actually calling for. These friends, the lost and the poor, everyone who, 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 who are before us, around us, who need the wealth we have, especially the spiritual wealth we have in Christ. All of these folks who have needs that our wealth can meet, we are to meet those needs. And here's the thing about spiritual wealth. Spiritual wealth, the truth as it is in Jesus, ultimately the gospel, 
is delivered by physical means that require physical wealth. I mean, somebody's paying right now for these lights we're under. Somebody's paying for this either heat or air conditioning that we have right now. I can't tell which it is. I feel like I need air conditioning. I wonder if the heat's on, but maybe the air conditioning's on. I don't know, but I do know this. Somebody's paying for it. They don't give it to us free. The gospel, the work of God is delivered by way of physical wealth. It doesn't just happen. And so when believers use their physical wealth, whatever it is at their disposal, it's meant to be used, yes, for their basic needs. Of course, for basic needs. Of course it is. But it's also to be used to spread the spiritual wealth of the good news of Jesus. So God's will for that wealth is then being done. His will is, is that eternal destinies be changed by the use of temporal means. Others receive the king and a place in the kingdom. That's his aim, that's his goal, that should be ours. And so literally we should be saying, how do I take what I have? How do I use my house to reach my neighbors for Christ? How do I use my car to get to the poor? Do you, do you see what I'm saying? How do I take the money I have to advance the gospel? How do I take the, the resources, the things that I have to advance the gospel? I got a call from Pastor Raju in India last week. And he's a wonderful man. He comes to visit us. I think he's coming again in, in November, I think this next month. I got a call from him in India and he was telling me he's got an orphanage. He's got uh, kids that nobody wants. A lot of them were sick. He was asking for me to pray for them. One little boy was about to die. Medication is limited, all of that. He has a school that he opens up to the community and he teaches Hindus the gospel of Jesus. I love it. They want a good education. So he's opened up a school and he's teaching Hindus the gospel of Jesus. Love it. Love the strategy. He has hundreds of pastors that he supports and trains and sends out. And these pastors go out and they're beaten, they're stripped, they're bloodied, their families are attacked. Their lives are I mean, I, oh my goodness. My heart breaks for these pastors struggling. And they'd be glad to have $2,600 a year, I can tell you. But he calls me and he's sharing these with me and sharing some health concerns. And I prayed for him and I've been praying for him. And, and then at the end, he says, and pastor, he said, one more thing. He said, we need a gospel van. I said, okay, never heard of that. Don't know what a gospel van is. I mean, I can think of some ideas in my head, but I have no idea what a gospel. So okay, I said, well, tell me about that. He said, well, we need a gospel van. He said, we need, he said, our van is breaking down. It, it just doesn't run anymore. And we, we use the van to go out in the villages to share the gospel. We've got, you know, sound equipment and so forth. And we put in the back of the van, we go out to these little villages, we set up, we share the gospel. Then we go house to house praying for people and, and winning people to Christ. And he said, we need a van. I said, okay, well, you know, I'm not an expert on how much vans are in India. It's been a long time since I bought a van in India. So I, so I said to him, I said, well, pastor, how, how much is that? I mean, I have no idea. I'm thinking India, I'm thinking, you know, I, well, I just don't know. How much is a van in India? 
And he said, well, 15 grand. I said, okay, all right. I said, well, let me take this to the Lord and I'll let you know. Hung up. Let me tell you something. Because so many of you are faithful to give week after week and month after month. Here's the reality at Center Grove. We have a ministry opportunities reserve account. Because we decided years ago that we wanted to be ready whenever God gave us a gospel opportunity. So I was able this past Monday to email him and say, Pastor Raju, $15,000 is coming your way from Center Grove for a gospel van. It'll be there on Wednesday. Now, let me tell you, let me tell you why this matters. Let me just draw, let me just connect the dots for you here in a a way, because I don't want you to forget this. Because some of you gave, we were able to be generous. Because some of you were faithful to give week after week, we were able to be generous. And what that means is that some of you have an incredible surprise coming when you cross this line, God calls you home, and you step into eternity. Well, what is that surprise? What is that surprise? Jesus describes it for us. Do you notice what he says in verse 9? He says, when they fail, when wealth fails, when your money fails, when your possessions fail, and they are going to fail, sooner or later you're going to fail or they're going to fail, it's going to fail, when it fails. And Jesus comes back and calls you home. There's going to come a day when you're going to step into it from time into eternity. And I love this picture. Do it, Jesus says, so that they, who's, who are the they? The friends will welcome you into their eternal abodes. What is he saying? He's saying, invest your life, yes, but your money and your possessions for the cause of Christ, the gospel and eternity. And one day when you step over, if you've been faithful, there will be people standing there to greet you who will say, thank you for your investment because you lived your life giving so faithfully. I heard the gospel. You see, there came a day when a gospel van came into my village. They opened up the back doors and out came some sound equipment. We didn't know what was going on. And they began to talk and share the story of a savior who has come. I understand you helped pay for the right front tire. And I just wanted to say, thank you. Welcome home. Now, if that's not a reward, I don't know what one is. But it does seem to me to be one of the great tragedies of the Christian life. If I were having come to faith in Christ, so managed my money and my possessions that I had rarely anything to give to advance the gospel. 
Because what's going to happen is I will make my way through life. I'll step over and I'll land in eternity because Jesus secured that for me. But I'm going to land spiritually bankrupt. And it seems to be one of the great tragedies of heaven is going to be stepping across. And because I invested nothing or very little in the cause of Christ, there's nobody there when I step in to say thank you. You and I have got a choice to make. We can keep investing in ourselves, keep pouring into ourselves. We can always say, I'll start giving when I get more. You never will. Look at verse 10. Jesus says, if you're faithful in little, you'll be faithful in much. But if you're unfaithful with a little, you'll never be faithful with much. You just won't be faithful because you're not faithful. You say, I hate this. Why is he doing this? Well, what did you expect me? I'm, 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 I'm laying out principles from the word of God. What did you expect me to do? If you don't like this book, go find a church that uses a different book. <laughs> I, I don't know what else to tell you. I got one book. It's the only book I got. But that would be the great tragedy for so many believers. The world will tell you, just keep pouring into yourself. You don't have enough. You, you, you need more. No, 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 no. What you have is what you've got, is what God's given you, and his plan for you is the same as the multi-millionaire who knows Jesus. His plan is the same. His plan hasn't changed. You can't give as much, but you can still give the left front tire of a gospel van and, there, and still have an impact for the kingdom. You may not be able to buy a van. If God wanted you to buy a van, he'd give you enough to buy a van. But I tell you, there's something amazing that happens when the body of Christ gathers and week after week after week and month after month after month, we're giving together. There is an ability, there is a power, and one day we're going to have an opportunity to celebrate together what God has done through our collective faithfulness. So I want to ask you a question as I close today. How rich are you? Really? Forget about how much you owe and how much your house is worth or whatever, 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 whatever. Say, I don't have a house, I got a car. All right, how much your car is worth, whatever, whatever. Forget about that. How rich are you really? How much are you intentionally with the resources that you have? The money, yes, and the possessions you have. How much of that literally goes into the kingdom work of God week after week? This week, how, many, how much? You say, well, that's none of your business. I don't want to know. But I'm going to tell you, one day when you cross this line, you're going to take your books with you as a steward of everything God gave you. And he's going to say to you, all right, you're fired. Or come home, however you want to hear it. And he's going to say, bring your books with you. Let's go over your accounts. 
let's see how rich you really are. The very best place for you to start is in the local church. Say, oh, I knew that was coming. Well, good. You know your Bible. Good. Again, I'm asking you, what did you expect? It's in the local church. You want to have an impact in the community? You you want to make an eternity's worth of difference in the community? Start here. You want to make a, 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 an eternity's worth of difference in India? Start here. Right now on the, uh, at Cape Coral, the North Carolina Baptist Relief Team is serving some 20,000 meals a day to people impacted by Hurricane Ian. Where do they get the resources for that? They don't give us the food free. <laughs> It's not free. It's just a vehicle, though, for the gospel. Does that make sense to you? So here's what I'm saying to you. Start here. The standard of God for his people is 10% of their income. You say, oh, I'm, oh, okay, okay. I tithe. I want you to know that. I, I had our, our, our business administrator in the first service. I had her affirm that I do because she knows. And we do over that, but she knows, so she agreed. And I asked her to stay the second service, she didn't. I must have embarrassed her, but anyway. <laughs> she didn't expect that question. But I do, but here's the thing, look, look, look. I'm not here to condemn you, I'm not here to criticize you, but I am here to plead with you. You're gonna have your books open one day. Regardless of what you have or haven't done in the past, now's the time. Just like that unjust manager, he realized now's the time. Now's the time. You're going to have your books open. So look, 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 look. You say, I, I can't do 10. I can't. Okay. Start with two. I guarantee you this is what's going to happen as you start to give. You're going to figure out there's joy in giving. You may say, I only gave a lug nut on that van. Hey, a lug nut. Every van's got to have lug nuts. Start with a lug nut. Give a lug nut every week. Give 2%. But what you will find is that God begins to bless and you'll go from two to four. You go to five. The joy increases and there's this, this incredible, you know, you're making your, your investment in your retirement or whatever, good for you. Make an investment in eternity for somebody else. Make it your ambition that one day I'm gonna have some people standing there to greet me when I cross over who say thanks. I know you gave up some stuff. You gave up a trip. You gave up this or that. You adjusted your budget. So you could be generous. Thank you. It's coming. And I think Jesus gave us this parable to warn us, to remind us, and to encourage us. There's more to heaven than just getting in. 
there's a welcome to be had. How rich are you? How about you start? How about you start? Week by week by week, giving back to the master what is his for the cause of his kingdom. We'll take mine and we'll take yours and together we'll ask God to change the destiny of lots of people. And one day we'll celebrate together what God did with what he gave us. Sound like a plan? Do you feel your heart right now going, yes, but no. Yes, but no. Yeah, be careful, Jesus said. It's easy to love. Look at verse 13. It's easy to love money more than me. Be careful. Let's pray. Lord God, we, uh, we bow in this place. We thank you that you give us an opportunity to use our gifts for you. We thank you give us an opportunity to serve you. But today we acknowledge that you also call and claim everything that we own in terms of money and possessions. These things are not ours, they're yours. And we acknowledge that today. Oh Lord God, give us of you bigger than ourselves. Give us of you bigger than our needs and wants. Give us of you bigger than our pleasure, our well-being, our comfort. Give us of you, Lord God, please, of eternity to come. Of people in India and little villages that have never heard the gospel of sick children laying in bed in need of help. Give us a view bigger than ourselves. Give us a view of the power of the gospel to save, to transform life, yes, and destiny. Give us a view, Father, of how our homes can be used for the gospel, how our cars can be used for the gospel. Give us a vision of how we might reach our neighbors wherever you've planted us with the good news. Help us to see way beyond ourselves. Make us, Lord God, I pray, a generous people. Right now, Lord God, would you bring to our minds the loss that we know, the broken and the hurting that you've put already within our reach and in our lives alongside the money and the possessions we have. Call us, Lord God, specifically by your spirit. Show us what to do to bring the two together. Our wealth is your wealth and you call us to distribute it. Show us how to do that, please. Grant that one day we would step in to heaven, rich with rewards, 
because we were willing to use what you'd given us as you led us in your word and by your spirit. We pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kortz. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.